The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good day, everyone. Welcome again to another edition of Boomer Generation Radio. This is your host, Richard Address, and we are coming to you from the studios of WWDB here in Greater Philadelphia, AM860, streaming live on WWDBAM.com. And again, you can reach us at Boomer Generation Radio at um, gmail.com and like us on the Boomer Generation Radio Facebook page. We will be back with our first segment guests, Anna Barrison and Lindsay Sparagana. Got that right. And uh, we will do that right after these words from our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall Outreach. Kendall Outreach serves the field of aging by raising public awareness of important health care issues of older adults. And it provides education and training in the development and implementation of comprehensive approaches to safe, individualized, long-term care practices. Kendall Outreach has been sharing Kendall's approaches to quality care with consumers, advocates, providers, government agencies, and related organizations since 1989. To learn more, visit KendallOutreach.org. Good day, everyone. Welcome again back to our first segment here on Boomer Generation Radio uh, on a beautiful day here in greater Philadelphia. And for those of us who live in the beautiful state of New Jersey, don't forget to go out and vote. I did this morning at about quarter to seven, and thankfully nobody was there, <laughs> and the lines weren't weren't because everybody was just waking up. So go out and vote early. Vote often. Who knows? But just go out and vote. Um, we want to welcome to our microphone and our show, Anna Barrison and Lindsay Sparagana, both from the University of the Arts. Good morning. Downtown. Hello. How are you? Nice to see you. Lindsay, um, uh, uh, Anna is a professor of liberal arts at the university and Lindsay is a senior lecturer of photography. So welcome ladies. Welcome to Boomer Generation Radio. Thank you. Thank you. We're happy Ni- to be here. Nice to see you and lots to talk about, about some very exciting things that you guys are involved in with young people on um, some intergenerational work with the arts, the, the, the role of the arts in, in our society, uh, or the lack of the funding of the arts and some very exciting ex- exhibitions that are also currently involved. So lots to talk about and the role of play and all this other stuff. And we're going to try to do all that in a very short <laughs> amount of time. It's like two semesters worth <laughs> of work. But why not? Why you know, not? what the heck? So talk to me about this project that you're involved with young kids and older adults with um, uh, all kinds of issues in the arts. What is it? Why is it? How did it get started? Well, our students put us together. Lindsay and I both uh, had been speaking to the administrators at the university saying we need to do some kind of formal community engagement work where we bring our students into the local community right around the university to do art with local kids because the budget cuts in the arts had been so horrendous, so consistently horrendous. Um, And we had university students who were itchy to use their skills. Uh, They were concerned about their future employment, and they didn't know what skills they had. And one day I had a bunch of photo majors in one of my liberal arts classes come up to me and say, you know, there's this woman in photography who's speaking the same exact language. You should have coffee. And then we did, and the rest is history. 
We are very fortunate at the University of the Arts that we have students studying visual arts and performing arts. And Anna and I now have the opportunity to team teach those students through our neighborhood engagement program. And what's really nice is that we uh, we're able to take students to two separate locations in Point Breeze, which is in walking distance of our university, to engage in arts electives with young people. And it became, uh, the program has been snowballing. We started with one course. We now have two courses. And if the community had its will, we would have multiple courses because there's so many organizations who are itchy to have our students What's the course? What's the course? So the course rests in something called the Collaborative Studio, which is a university-wide program. Um, that all the students have to choose one kind of collaborative studio, and they're often team-taught courses. And ours happened to be a team-taught course that uh, is not on campus but is primarily off campus in the after-school programs. And um, the collaborative studio that we've been running has been called Art Stories, Kids Stories. <laughs> and uh, our interest was having our students develop the curriculum together in teams so that they could use their art training out into the community. So, and, and how does this involve, uh, older adults, baby boomer? How, how does, where's the intergenerational connection on it? Well, the first thing I want to argue is that, that putting college students with elementary school kids is a first step in intergenerational mm-hmm. learning. Yes. Because Absolutely. they're very, very different kinds of, of creators. Um, and, uh, the, the college students have a reawakening about what it's like to be a child. And they also have a reawakening that their childhood and the childhood of the kids growing up in Point Breeze are very, very different typically, even though we sometimes get uh, students from the neighborhood. Um, so they're aware of, of historical change, cultural change, um, and just the, the importance for them of reminding themselves how to play that the children have so many strengths in, uh, in using their imagination, and it, it's invigorating for the art students, and it's invigorating for the littles. At the same time, we um, we were given this opportunity by the university, which was very, very supportive, but we also had hardly any budget. And so we were scrounging for materials. And I was invited to a building in Center City to give a lecture about our program, um, and it had mostly retired folks, uh, a lot of elders in the building, although not exclusively. And I thought, well, I should ask if anybody has materials that they don't want in their apartments. We would take old paper, fabric, buttons, markers, old keys, whatever people wanted to unload, and we would find a way to use it in our art electives. And we had a bounty of materials. And the elders in the community were so uh, generous and so thoughtful, they even for months after the lecture was over, they would supply us with yarn um, and they would supply us with markers and pens and pencils that were rattling around in drawers that they weren't using. So we realized that the resources in one community could complement the lack of resources in another community. And then when we uh, had an opportunity to bring them together, it was very, very sweet. So the elders got to meet the young children and got to meet the college students. And it may sound... Um, advantageous to think that yarn wouldn't play a large role uh, in the life of a student, but we had kids who made an incredible obstacle course in their cafeteria using yards and yards of yarn, 
And we also had students who gathered them at the end of the day and rather than throwing the yarn out, decided to take it home because it was something that they had ownership over and it was something that they didn't have access to at home. And it gave them the opportunity for a tactile experience outside of school. One of the things that we learned uh, together was just how um, how under-resourced the children's homes were in terms of basic play materials in terms of the arts. So to have to be able to take a pencil home, to be able to take a marker home, sounds like no big deal, but it was huge. To be able to take leftover tape home, to be able to take leftover paper home. And so here we had a community that had so much material, that had too much material that was stuffing their drawers, and we had kids who had never played with a cardboard box. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were, we were basically a clearinghouse, kind of a resource exchange. And Lizzie, from what we were talking about before, you you photograph this the class. I mean, you take the pictures and document the um, what's going on in this project. Yes, and if I didn't have my exceptional team teacher, there is no <laughs> way I would be able to do this. Um, but I spend my time during our course running all over an after school program and checking on all of my students. And over the course of two years, um, the students have stopped paying attention to the camera that I carry with me. And all of a sudden, moments of courage and collaboration and extreme creativity have unfolded. And I've been able to really document our process in a way that is very raw and truthful to what we do. She stands on tables and does all kinds of crazy things. The program, the name of the program is what? Is New Arts, and we call it that because it's Neighborhood Engagement at the University of the Arts, N-E-U-A-R-T-S. And it's been going on for how long? Two years. Two years. Going on three. This will be our third year. Talk to me about one instance, first thing that comes into your mind, where a child you could see was transformed as a result of this. I actually, I actually have something written by one of our students as he was reflecting on uh, the how, experience. How old was this kid? Um, so this is um, a, a student who's going into his junior year this year, um, and I'm just going to read his junior words. Junior year in high school. Junior year in college. And oh, he's college. talking oh. about working with an eighth grader. Oh, okay. Go ahead. So he says, I'm an acting major who got to participate in teaching an eighth grader aspiring to be a fine artist in face of a neighborhood that is demographically lowest in attendance and participation in art-affiliated events to properly draw a face, his face. The interactions with this particular child engaged in cultivating a sense of creativity became more than just about translating a face onto a page, but how to artfully communicate an identity to establish his perspective of himself as something significant and worthy of becoming art. My classmates and I got to learn about ourselves as individuals through the keen eyes of children and about the community growing around the university. Mm. Now, the flip side of that from uh, a child's perspective was a reflection that came from uh, one of our most introspective third graders in a game design elective who said, I didn't know that you could change the rules. And we thought that was an incredible anecdote because we're talking about children that are living in a neighborhood with a very high incarceration rate. We're talking about children who don't have many opportunities to go outside and explore after school because they live in a traumatic world. And 
to know that our kids are learning that the rules can be bent and manipulated and changed to accommodate what they want to do in the future um, really hits home that we're doing something huge. that is impactful on their lives. Is therapy, is, is art therapy? Can art that you're doing with these kids, is it therapeutic? I, I do think that what we're, I think all art is therapeutic. I think anytime you give people an opportunity to say what's really true and what's really on their mind, um, it has the, the, the potential to be transformational. And the nice thing about working in an after-school setting is that sometimes conversations arise between the children and the college students that push the boundaries of what is traditionally acceptable to discuss in school. And we have a space where we can draw and craft and move while we discuss these issues. And I think that it's therapeutic for the children to know that they've got an adult who is willing to listen to them and give them feedback about what they're going through. Mm-hmm. We're speaking with Anna Berenson and Lindsay Sparagana, professors at the University of Arts in this new arts program. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll be right back with them to talk a little bit about uh, some of your own personal work. We want to talk a little bit about this exhibit, some of your your books and this whole idea of play because it's fascinating. We will do that right after this message from our friends down the street at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall Outreach. Kendall Outreach serves the field of aging by raising public awareness of important health care issues of older adults. And it provides education and training in the development and implementation of comprehensive approaches to safe, individualized, long-term care practices. Kendall Outreach has been sharing Kendall's approach to quality care with consumers, advocates, providers, government agencies, and related organizations since 1989. To learn more, visit KendallOutreach.org. Welcome back to our first segment here on Boomer Generation Radio. We're speaking with Anna Barrison and Lindsay Sparagana, professors at the University of the Arts, about their new arts program. You're listening to Boomer Generation Radio on WWDB AM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia, and we are streaming live all over the known universe on WWDBAM.com <laughs> and perhaps some of the unknown universe as well. Um, who knows? You know, in this day and age, who's listening? Um, you talk about you, you, you talked about in the first segment the, the role of the creativity aspect of these things with these kids. Anna, you've written some books on play. Yeah. Talk to me about the power of play, not only with children, but why does play seem to get reduced in value as we get older? You know, you don't, as you, you, you talk to adults in the business world, even older though, you don't act like that. Mm-hmm. You're acting childish. Right. So my question is, what the heck's wrong with acting childish? Oh, I mean, uh, that's a great question. Why do we forget? Why do we have play amnesia as we get older? And clearly it's cultural. I mean, I'm sure everyone hopefully has at least one person in their life who's still very, very, very playful and reminds them that it's possible to be a playful adult. Um, and I think artists are, tapped into that playfulness as, as a way to the creative juice to keep them going. It's why it's very fun to be around artists. Um, but it's a cultural thing. Um, we associate, I think it's part of our Puritan heritage culturally um, that uh, we're, we see that work is serious and play is not serious. But what we know from the literature is that play is actually very, very serious stuff. 
um, and that work can be incredibly pleasurable. I mean, you're you're working right now, and I consider this oh, to be a pretty pleasurable. This is not work. <laughs> exactly. This is, this is exactly. easy. This is easy. Well, why? why work is you... rooting for the Phillies. Uh, that is. There we go. I'm a it's... Ryan Howard fan. What can I say? Yeah, we all, aren't we all? <laughs> Enjoy it while it lasts. Uh, <laughs> Uh, 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 is play creative? Is play creativity? Well, as part of my second book, which is called The Art of Play, um, in addition to documenting uh, play on playgrounds and then giving the kids that I was studying uh, paint and brushes and paper to paint what they do on the schoolyard and how it makes them feel, I also interviewed a dozen different faculty at the University of the Arts, including some folks who had been on this show, Carol Moore and Phil Schulman, just a few months right. ago, um, and asked them to talk about the connection between play and art in their own private practice. And again and again, the theme emerged that for artists, uh, not exclusively, but for many, many artists, the beginning of the creative process begins with play. It's the moving around of ideas. And this idea of physically moving things around came up again and again, whether you're a dancer or a painter or a musician. Or a photographer. So, Lindsay, you... I, 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 we've noticed on this show and the work that I do in, in around with Jewish sacred aging, older adults, baby boomers, re-emerging themselves in art sometimes, uh, whether it's painting or photography. What what do you find? And you're a photographer. You teach it, and you're also a professional photographer. And a good one. What what is it about that? Um, expression that comes to people at a certain age is it that they want to all of a sudden release this internal creativity that's been suppressed because they had to go out and earn a living what 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 have you found what is it that's a really good question um not only do i have young people and undergraduates at the university of the arts but i also teach in the continuing studies department and i think that the most important thing to reinforce in children and in adults is that they're the only people who see the way that they do. They mm-hmm. have a set of eyes that is very specific, that sees the world in a way that no one else does. And because um, it's very easy for anyone to be a photographer these days, sometimes you need to stretch your imagination and really go out on a limb in terms of what you see and try to see things differently. Um, I think the... The really interesting thing in terms of photography with children is that they're not always given something as powerful as a camera to use as a tool. And when they do that and they start to talk about their photographs, um, their sense of the world starts to shift a little bit. And we've even found with college students, many times as undergraduates, um, they're very focused on their individual discipline and they're looking internally quite a bit. And... Using photography allows them to externalize a little bit more, look at the world around them, analyze what's going on, and show their vision. Yeah, I, I think this what, the line that you use, the fact that everybody sees the world through their own eyes, everybody's their own individual creative process is really, it's, A, it's very spiritual, but I think it's also you know, something to keep in mind. There aren't no people, no two people look at the world the same way from what I'm understanding. You have an exhibit. Yes. At, at the university, talk to me about that. And, your, and you have a website for your photography. Yes. Uh, my website is www.lindsaysparagana.com. Spell it. S-P-A-R-A-G-A-N-A. 
Um, and the exhibition is called Changing the Rules, which was a derivative of the anecdote that I told you about earlier. Uh, there are about 20 color photographs in the office of the president at the University of the Arts, which is at 320 South Broad Street, Broad and Pine in Center City. And the exhibition will hang um, until the end of the week. And it's just a really great visual representation, not only of the partnership that we've established but of the materials that we've been able to utilize thanks to the donations of some of the senior citizens we've encountered. So at the opening of the exhibition, we had children, university community, and uh, students, as well as seniors who had donated materials that were really, really appreciated. Um, in one of the conversations or in, in preparing for the show, you, you, you mentioned something about – so I want to – and we only have about – Five minutes left. Um, this concept of ageism associated with silencing children, mm. similar to the ageism, ageism of silencing elders. Mm. What does that mean? <laughs> so, um, Lindsay and I both have dealt with and prioritized working with marginalized populations. And I think when you have folks who are pushed out on the the margins of society, whether they're children or elders or minorities or poor people, that people on the edges uh, aren't given um, the without getting into presidential politics, but with, they don't have the, the the podium that people with uh, with wealth and status have in this country. Um, and I was thinking, I want to circle back to yeah. something you said before about play and and elders and about photography as you get older and, and, and the kind of the, the, the folk arts of, of aging, if you want to put it that way. And I'm reminded of something that uh, Henry Glassie, the, the great uh, folklorist, talked about, which is that we're in an anesthetic culture, um, a culture that has everything to be squeaky clean like a hospital, that our schools are anesthetic like hospitals, um, and that uh, life is an aesthetic a, a- Aesthetic right. experience, um, and that the greatest gift that children give our students and the elders is to be reminded to do things with your hands and to sing and to dance and to be goofy and to be theatrical all the time, not just in childhood, that this is a philosophy of life, to be playful. Um, and I think sometimes when people retire, they realize that they are at liberty to be more playful, that they're not required to act in a prescribed way. They don't have to wear their suit to work. They don't have to eat the way they are eating in their cafeteria. They can let loose and are inspired, perhaps on a spiritual level, to uh, to find some way to express the things that everybody has inside them. It's easier, uh, let me ask you, is it, is it then easier to have more programs and opportunities for generations to be together and to interact as opposed to siloing the generations as we sometimes do here in the United States? Absolutely. I think that's, you know, that's traditionally been the model for millennia that, that different generations need each other, that little kids need access to elders, little kids need access, uh, to, uh, to college students and to teenagers. And we need them. Um, we have about two minutes left uh, before our next segment, and and, and um, let me just ask you: You've been doing this for a couple of years. I'm sure you your your book of memories, personal memories, are filled with some absolutely wonderful incidences in the role of what you both do as artists, because both of you are artists. Yes. 
most powerful memory, Lindsay, in two years? We had um, a student in third grade who created a top hat in a mm-hmm. circus elective to help facilitate his character. And thanks to a very generous donation from Lowe's, we had lots of colored duct tape to work with. And he also made claws. And when we asked him exactly what he was doing, he said, I'm going to be the lion and the lion tamer all at once, Mm. simultaneously. Future CEO. (laughs) Multitasking (laughs) at its finest. Right, right. Anna? I think for me, the greatest light bulb is when you see the students and the littles, as we refer to them, fall in love with each other. They absolutely fall in love with each other. And you can see that in these amazing photographs. You have students with uh, little kids with their arms draped over the college student looking into a camera, sometimes for the first time. So the, the, the friendship that gets established. Um, we have so many students now who are choosing to volunteer in these two communities that we work with um, above and beyond our, our class time. So um, for me, it's the relationship building that is so astounding. We're really striving to create empathetic undergraduates that go out into the world and work more freely in communities, whether it be with children or with elders. And, 30 seconds. And my last 30 seconds is check us out at new, if you Google new arts, you arts, you will find us or email us at new arts. But, but on a spell new arts. N-E-U-A-R-T-S and you arts is U-A-R-T-S right on Broad Street. And you can even email us at new arts at uarts.edu. So we've been speaking with uh, professors uh, Anna Baronson and Lindsay Sparagana at the University of the Arts about their new arts program. Intergenerational, very creative. Thank you very, very much, ladies, for coming in all the way from the various <laughs> outreaches or inreaches of the city of Thank Philadelphia so. to share. It's a great, great continued good luck. This is this is great. I appreciate it very much. Um, check out your Lindsay's uh, exhibit down at the university, uh, Broad and Pine, to all of you. Um, I want to thank you very much. We're going to be back with our second segment with Peter Hecht about some other exciting programs coming up from Hecht Investment. And we're going to do that uh, right after we take this little musical bridge. Um, if I'm not mistaken, it's a beautiful sunny day. It's election day, a primary day in New Jersey. It's a good time for I think we're doing a little Aretha. <laughs>
Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Kendall is committed to working with others as we together transform the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Good day, everyone, and welcome back to our second segment here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. This is your host, Richard Address, and again, coming to you from WWDB AM860 here in Philadelphia. And streaming live on www.dbam.com. And a reminder, you can check us out on the Boomer Generation Radio Facebook page, as well as sending us anything you would like to uh, suggest at boomergenerationradio at gmail.com. And again, the shows are podcast uh, on my website, uh, jewishsacredaging.com. They're podcasts and archives, so you can, if you miss something and you want to go back, and it's always going to be there. We are very pleased and honored to welcome... To the microphone for our second segment, Peter Hecht from the Hecht Investment Group at Johnny Montgomery Scott over in southern New Jersey. Peter, I hope you're there. Yes, I am. Good hey. morning, Richard. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? How are you? Great, great. Uh, you said earlier on the previous show, it is outside. It's beautiful. It's a nice uh, spring-slash-summer day. And uh, I voted this morning. I hope you did. And I uh, hope about all of your quarter to seven this morning. I was at the polls. Good. Good. And so we are here to initially talk a little bit about, and we again welcome back Peter. Peter's uh, one of our regular guests, comes on about once a quarter, and Hecht Investment Group has been a, a very good friend of the show. And you're involved, uh, Peter, in organizing a whole series of forums, educational forums, but one specific that we want to talk a little bit about right now is coming up on June the 14th, with, next week, and it's going to be dealing with what? It's going to be, it's from 6 to 8 at Woodcrest uh, Country Club in Cherry Hill, and it is going to be dealing with uh, end-of-life uh, events, um, everything from the medical end, the spiritual um, uh, uh, end, and uh, there'll be some information on the aging process by uh, one of the guests who's uh, worked with the group from, from uh, MIT. And, of course, the host is going to be a very well-known radio personality locally and, and uh, uh, author, uh, Dan, Dr. Dan Gottlieb. Right, and Dan, uh, Danny was on the show last week, yes. and he, was, he gave us a, a, a beautiful poetic hour of, of his time. I guess the, the obvious question is you run a financial services program, organization, a group. Your job is to you know, help people deal with their money. What does this have to do with end of life? Well, we we like to provide very stimulating and educational and informative uh, meetings with our our clients and guests. Uh, as you know, we've done uh, past we've done Social Security. We've also had a nutritionist come. Uh, we had something light with uh, a golf tech where we had uh, people come and and. Uh, 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 play simulated golf, but we also uh, 
had one on the iPad and iPhone, and we're preparing one in the fall with the uh, assistant U.S. attorney from uh, Philadelphia who handles uh, cybersecurity. So that, that'll be in the fall. And this just kind of fits, uh, Richard. You and I have spoken about it in, in the past. Uh, that's part of the reason we're doing the uh, panel on the 14th is that death is a part of, of life. Uh, it's planning for your needs and wants, discussing your fears, your fears of pain, uh, uh, and, and focusing on, on the patient, just as we try and focus on the client. What are their wants? What are their goals? What are their needs? What are their fears? And it's quite frankly, as you and I have discussed, and you've discussed on your show and, and on your blog, it's a subject that many people don't want to talk about, but it's very necessary. So it does fit with financial planning. So walk me through now um, how the financial planning fits in with it's 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 extremely difficult as all of us know to begin to have these conversations about my wishes for the end of my life. We've done many shows on it. I do workshops all around around the country, and yet the, other than the spiritual aspect, which is overwhelmingly profound, um, talk to me about the financial concerns about a family sitting down, let's say people in their 60s or 70s with their adult children, they'll go through some of the hopefully issues about these are the, this is what I want medically, this is what I want spiritually. How can you work with a family? In what way can you work with a family to begin to walk them through how to make some financial decisions? Well, you know, part of part of what we do is obviously retirement planning. What people uh, are expecting in in their uh, retirement days, you know, where the family location is, whether they're close by, they're far away, um, what their relationships are with their children and other uh, family members, and so it really kind of fits because um, uh, you know, obviously, we encourage people to have wills and do estate planning. It's extremely important that you work with uh, an estate planning attorney. Also, part of the team should be uh, uh, your accountant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, our team, we're all CFPs, certified financial planners. So we work closely with these individuals. But then, you know, comes the, comes the you know palliative care, the the uh, hospice. That's necessary. You know, what does that person want? What are the things that may not be in a will that they would like to um, uh, suggest uh, to their family that, if possible, they they would like to do this? Uh, a great book that you and I have talked about. Uh, the author is Atul Gawande. Right, being mortal. Uh, and p- pardon me. It's being mo- being mortal. Yes, being mortal, and it's a series of stories, and, and quite frankly, um, I became interested in it. My wife and my sister-in-law belong to a book club, and they're avid readers, and they read this, and uh, they both suggested to me that I, that I read the book. Um, and it, it talks about uh, doctors discussing uh, s- serious issues at end of life uh, with individuals, family members. There's a story in there. Uh, and I may be, be uh, misquoting it a bit, uh, or, or uh, uh, when I when I summarize, I may be leaving one or two items out. So I apologize to Dr. Guande. However, um, there's a story in there where he has, as you well know, a a woman who's a doctor, and her husband, or excuse me, her father is very old uh, and needs surgery. And his big fear, he was a baseball fan, big baseball fan, and he loved ice cream. And his biggest fear was 
uh, that he would come out of the surgery completely immobilized uh, and wouldn't be able to understand that he was having uh, ice cream or be able to watch uh, the baseball game, even if it is the Phillies. And um, uh, he discussed that with her. After the surgery, she came. He came out, and he was completely disabled. He was um, not able to speak, uh, although he could hear and understand. And she asked the doctors uh, before the surgery, "Will my dad?" And then after the surgery, "Will my dad?" Uh, or actually, it was after the surgery, "Will my dad be able to uh, eat ice cream and understand he's eating ice cream and watch the ball games?" And they said, "Yes, he will." And so she said, "Great, the feet that way." Uh, it's a very moving, he has very moving stories in there about personal discussions that people have at the end of life. And it's important. It affects their finances. It affects, uh, uh, you know, family members. Um, and as you and I have discussed, uh, particularly people with significant assets, uh, at the end of life, it's amazing what, what money does to family. How so, diff- uh, it's, P- all, it's all a part of it. Peter, how difficult is it in, in your experience, because you've dealt with families now, you know, for years, how difficult is financial planning for the end of life versus retirement? P- are people more likely to talk about, I want to sit down with you, Peter, and work out a retirement plan? And if you bring up, well, we, part of that conversation has to be the financial aspects of after you pass away. Do you find a resistance to that? No, we, we don't find a resistance because m- many people are quick to tell us that they have recently updated their wills or that they have living wills. Most people are willing to discuss it. Now, it comes to the follow-through, whether they actually do it. And uh, part of what we do, and of course we're not attorneys, uh, is we stay on top of people about that and we tell them that a basic part of uh, of uh, uh, financial planning is to have your estate plan uh, update, updated and concise and exactly the way that you want it. Because we have seen time and time again, and we see it with divorce as well, or second marriages, I should say, that uh, things aren't clear, and it causes a lot of bitterness and uh, upset and anger in the families. And so we try and stress that with them, because a lot of times people will come and say, oh, my kids are very close, and they're very loving, and they have been that way all along, and then if things aren't in order, we we see the after effects of that, that what was promised to whom, and how much this one was getting, and it was really mine and not yours. So we're not bashful about bringing it up. It's the follow-through that, that counts, and so we try and stay in stay on top of our clients with that. Yeah, you, you've mentioned a couple times that, that you work and, and suggest to, to people to really develop a, a financial planning team, a team approach. We talk about in the caregiving thing, and, and we, we talk about, and this, this may come up next week, the idea of having a care plan, you know, who's going to take care of what, these are my wishes as we move forward. But you, but you seem to indicate this idea of, uh, of a financial planning team, the financial advisor, the elder care attorney, the accountant. Just speak to me a little bit about how, how really important this is for individuals to really look at this team approach as opposed to trying to do everything by themselves. Well, I guess the best way to describe it is um, if you have a pain in your shoulder – and you go online and you get a number of lists of things that it could be. It could be bursitis, could be arthritis, could be a strained muscle. 
and uh, or it could be cancer, uh, and then you go to uh, someone or you go to a physician, and they say the same thing. Well, it doesn't look like anything. Come back and see me in two weeks. You're not going to think much of that person, or when you read it online, you really need to work with a professional, someone who's going to diagnose what you have, what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, what are your fears, what are your anxieties. Uh, when you say you want to take a trip every year, where do you want to go? How much are you going to spend? Uh, what's your income going to be from Social Security, uh, pensions, uh, 401Ks, IRAs? How do you plan all of that? So to just sit down and wing it yourself is, I don't know, I guess it's like uh, some people can do it, and that God bless them if they can. That's wonderful. Uh, but um, it's kind of hard. If you're a good mechanic, you can change the tires and rotate your tires, etc., but are you going to be able to balance them? Are you going to be able to uh, uh, change things under the hood in just your little old garage, or are you going to need to see someone, uh, a professional mechanic? Same thing with a plumber. You know, it's, it's, it's so many different things, uh, disciplines. You know, um, uh, if you're a, a minister or a rabbi, uh, you plan what you're going to be speaking about on your on your. Uh, on the holidays, how you're going to speak to your congregation. Very seldom do you know someone who can just get up there and wing it uh, and, and speak to, to uh, you know, have, have their thoughts together. So uh, it's, it's, again, we've talked about it. It's a process. Mm-hmm. Everything's a process, and we believe in having a team. So same thing in same thing in sports, Richie. You and I talk about it all the time. Be careful, you now. know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're owners. They're managers, they're scouts, they're players, they're uh, uh, grounds people, there are um, uh, medical people to assist what's going on. It's, it's a process. You don't just walk out on the field and pick up a glove or pick up a football or grab a basketball and start playing. Right, and the, the nice thing about it is, is your team can at least hit. Uh, as opposed to some other team in town. <laughs> Peter, the, the, um, contact for next, for next week for your forum on end of life at the Woodcrest Country Club. Again, what are the times? And if someone is listening, uh, or picks this up on the podcast between now and next week, how do they register or what's the time frame? What's the phone number? What, how, what, how do they contact you? Okay. Uh, we are limited with seating, so we're, we're, we're about at max, but uh, there still are some available seats. The title of it is What Matters at the End. Uh, it's a special guest panel uh, moderated by Dr. Gottlieb. You're on that panel. Uh, Dr. Stephen Goldfein, who's the Chief Medical Officer of Samaritan Hosp- uh, Healthcare and Hospice, and Bill McNa- McManus, who is uh, from the Hartford and is Director of Strategic Markets. He's worked with Aging and the group from uh, MIT. Uh, it's Tuesday, June 14th from 6 to 8 p.m. at Woodca- Woodcrest Country Club. The address is 300 East Evesham Road in Cherry Hill, 08003. Uh, there'll be wine and beer and hors d'oeuvres uh, will be served. Our contact is our uh, practice manager, John Connors. The number is 856 291 Five zero two eight, or you can email John at J Connors C O N N E R S at Janney J A N N E Y dot com. 
So we're speaking with Peter Hecht of the Hecht Investment Group. We're talking about this uh, major, very, very important program that he's running next week uh, in southern New Jersey on end of life and issues of uh, finances and spirituality and medicine, et cetera, et cetera. We'll be back with Peter to talk, about, pick up on one or two of the things that he's just alluded to. Uh, very, very important for our generation right after this message from our friend at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Kendall is committed to working with others as we together transform the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Welcome back to our second segment here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. This is your host, Richard Address. WWDB AM 860 is our home, and we're streaming live on WWDBAM.com. We're speaking with Peter Hecht of the Hecht Investment Group of Johnny Montgomery Scott, located in southern New Jersey. And uh, we spent the first part of this second segment dealing a little bit with, well, no, all of it, with uh, this major program that Peter and his group are running next week on June the 14th, 6 to 8 p.m. at Woodcrest on uh, what matters at the end, the end-of-life issues, spiritual, emotional, psychological with Danny, and um, definitely financial. Peter, you alluded to some things in that first segment I want to pick up on, if it's okay. Um, and, and really, this also came up. I just got back from a weekend of teaching at some workshops and a conference on Alzheimer's out in St. Louis, and again, in one of the breakouts, the financial stuff just just keeps coming up over and over again. And in, in a session that I did with a with a synagogue um, also over the weekend before this conference, again, um, looking these are people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, okay, and some of them retired, some of them working, and again, the issue of I'm, I just feel I'm one medical emergency away from financial crisis. I don't know how to deal with this. I don't have enough money. I don't even know if I have enough money planned. How do we begin to, to tell people in this? And there's a lot of them. I'm sure you see them in your office all the time. How do we begin to, to just segment out and not go into a panic um, to prepare financially for a what if a medical emergency well, we do that as as part of the planning. Um, you know, we, it, it's important to sit down and discuss with an individual or individuals uh, what their priorities are, and um, uh, what that you know that includes not only retirement, but what types of medical benefits do they have, either through their employer or uh, if they're going on Social Security. Uh, you know, t- t- things of that nature. So it's it's a part of the discussion. But here again, you know, we we have to refer to a a uh, team. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, accountants uh, have a, a lot of valuable information uh, regarding uh, healthcare and and uh, you know what may what may be beneficial. So you know, we'll defer to their to their judgment. And look, there are attorneys who specialize in uh, elder care law. So it's not just wills and uh, uh, living, uh, uh, you know, uh, benefits and th- things of that nature. So we'll, we'll rely on their expertise as well. As part of your planning, working with a family, 
uh, I'm sure you've, you've run across this scenario. Family walks into you and says, you know, things have been going all right, but we're taking care of mom and mom has really started to decline. And now we have to look at placing mom in an assisted living facility because she needs a little bit more full time care and we can't do that anymore. We're selling the condominium, et cetera. But we're trying to manage the finances. So as part of that process, a part of that conversation also included in, okay, looking forward, here's how we're going to try to space out the finances so that we can take care of your loved one um, in a placement situation with a facility but also not bankrupt you. And Is that part of the conversation that you have with a family? Yes. One of the first items uh, along with the state planning uh, that we talk about, one of the questions we ask, is there any family member that will require your financial assistance? Mm-hmm. Just a basic question, and it opens up the dialogue. Many times the, the answer is no, uh, and uh, other times uh, it's, it's yes. And then we want to... We want to speak to that elder person. You'd be surprised at how grandma and grandpa have been sitting on, uh, or mom and dad have been sitting on millions of dollars, and the children don't know it. Really? So, uh, oh yeah, oh yeah. There, there are lots of uh, uh, people, you know, from our parents' generation, who, who, uh, or our generation, who are older, who don't want to discuss. Uh, finances with their children. They think it's better that the kids don't know and it's uh, until they're gone. <laughs> still, so, I, 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 that yeah. surprises me. You're still running into this, this the secrecy thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, also, we run into, you know, children with uh, special needs. So they're going to need a special needs trust established so that um, uh, the child can can reap benefits from the government. Uh, um and, and, you know, that there are provisions uh, for, for the child. And, again, there are attorneys who specialize in that area and, and work with, with families in providing special needs trust. Yeah, I know that that's becoming more and more of an issue as, as baby boomers age out and some of us have been taking care. So I know people, you know people, who they've been taking care of a child who's now an adult uh, with, with special needs, and the question is, after I'm gone, who's taking care of my Correct. child? My child. Correct. Correct. Or will there be funds available if they're going to go into a facility? And is it a good facility? Um, and um, um, you know, it's part of. We've just been in our industry talking about new Department of uh, Labor regulations regarding fiduciary responsibilities with 401ks, retirement accounts, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and putting the the client first is is the phrase. Um, hopefully, anybody in the business is putting their client first. But anyhow, uh, the the point being is that uh, uh, there's more and more of a fiduciary responsibility on the advisor uh, and and other people who advise uh, clients in in uh, uh, these areas, particularly special needs trusts. You know, where you have uh, someone who's designated as the administrator. A lot of times we use professional money management groups because they document everything. They know the regulations. They provide, you know, for what the, what the clients uh, need in, in this area. So it's very, very closely regulated, and you have to be very careful. Uh, we have about four minutes left in this segment, I, I, mm-hmm. and I want to pick up on something that you alluded to in that on the first, uh, you know, when we were talking before. Um, 
and that is the necessity of really crucial financial planning for a family who is dealing with a second marriage or third marriage or what I call subsequent marriages where you have adult children, you may have wills already done, estates, and then I'm sure you run into situations where there's some conflict. Uh, how it's, important? Well, it's, it's, Go ahead. It's, I'm sorry. It's it's very delicate. It's very delicate, particularly when you have a close relationship with the family and you have you have a relationship with the children of the the first marriage and um, um, and now you're you're uh, uh, close to the to the new family, which may or may not have new children. Um, and uh, one of the one of the parents passes, and it has to be delineated very, very ca- carefully, and and uh, uh, filed, you know, that uh, as to what's to happen with uh, with uh, funds. And p- sometimes people just think it's not going to happen to them, or they're still they're in their sixties, and you know they're not planning on dying until they're eighty. Well, that's not the way um, it always works, happens. Yeah. Yeah, right. Exactly. So it it has you have to be very very careful as to how it's set up for the children uh, from the first marriage. If you want anything set up for children from the and I mean inherited children from the second marriage, right, not right. necessarily children that you have with your second spouse, but um, uh, the 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 spouse had children that they're bringing to the marriage also. So you have to be very very careful regarding taxes, regarding how things are are delineated as to who gets what, who uh, who manages the estate, um, all, all kinds of things, and it's a very delicate. Uh, situation and unfortunately there's there's a saying in our business and it it's sometimes uh, that people are closer to their money than they are to their spouses I just have and to... so you see it a lot of times that that when it comes to second marriages children etc that it has to be spelled out or there can be a lot of a lot of animosity a lot of uh, difficulty and yes as an advisor you're stuck right in the middle so uh, get the the obvious advice is get everything in writing and talk about yep. it before before you walk down yep. that aisle or say I do yep. make sure all of this mm-hmm. is discussed correct mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yes. I, I, I I think not only for, I've, I've talked to clergy as well and and the fact that we part of actually doing premarital counseling for people who are getting married for a second or third time in light of exactly what you're talking about. There's a responsibility to have this conversation in the clergyman's clergy person's office uh, to make sure that they have had you know they have you talked yeah. to your financial advisor about your blend attempting to blend not only children and families but histories and stuff like that. We have about a minute and a half left. I want to make sure that you have an opportunity once again tell everybody contacting uh, Hecht Investment Group vis-a-vis the June 14th program. How do they do that? Sure. It's June 14th between 6 and 8 p.m. at Woodcrest Country Club in Cherry Hill. The contact is, the number is 856-291-5028. That's 856-291-5028. And the contact is John Connors, our practice manager. His email is jconnors at janny.com. Peter Heck to Hecht Investment Group. Take care. Thank you, Peter, for your always great information. Take care. Say hello home. And to all of you, thank you for joining us. And we'll see you next week on Boomer Generation Radio. Take care. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Richard. Go Phillies. Amen.